If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Horse welfare and safety are of utmost importance where humans have any interaction with horses. Within the courses at International Horse College, we only utilise methods that promote safe and humane ways of interaction between horses and humans. We only support safe methods of educating riders, handlers and trainers about horse welfare. Internationalhorsecollege.com Registered Training Organisation 31352 Today we're introducing Brett Parbury. Brett's a specialist dressage rider, trainer, also a competitor and a coach, competing at an international level. How are you today, Brett? Yeah, I'm well, thanks, Bernice. Great. Brett, we often will introduce people and then talk about their favourite quote. So have you got a quote for us today? Yeah, I mean, here's my father said to me once, the secret to having a happy life is to find something you really like to do and then try to be good enough at it that people will pay you to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I've always had it in the back of my mind and um, thankfully I really enjoy training and riding horses and coaching people and happen to be able to make a living out of it. I always joke that I'm unemployed, but it's quite big. <laughs> okay. It's good that you're um, able to do something that a lot of people don't get paid to do, but you're getting paid to do yeah. it. So it, yeah. that's good. And and I you know usually I say that how you know explain a bit more but I think that's pretty self-explanatory anyway yeah yeah now Brett you're from a horse family but your introduction to dressage I think is a bit interesting so normally I would say how did you start with horses but I think can you tell us a bit about your it's almost like you had a life with horses before dressage and then a life with horses after dressage does that explain fairly well. Yeah, look, I um, grew up in a horse training family and um, mainly for campgrafting, but, you know, my father also, we played polo cross and we then we were into a bit more quarter horses and we were into cutting as well, but that's a predominantly campgrafting and, and cattle horse sports, so I grew up in that. And yep. then um, as most kids did in our town or in, in the region I grew up in, you either went into show jumping full-time or you went into rodeo, so I... The guys that were in my year at school, quite a few of us went into rodeo. So I guess before that, though, like without winding back the clock, my sister used to do a bit of showing, like a bit of riding at shows. And my father, well, back in those days, the, the ag shows up in the area where I come from, which is North Coast of New South Wales, the ag shows would have, um, you know, your hat classes and your riding classes and those things in the morning. And then you'd have your sporting events in the afternoon. And then you'd either have your rodeo that night and then you have to campgraft the next day or something along those lines. It was a bit of like a, a festival where you'd have a bit of everything. So, you know, I did a lot of showing and did Brisbane Royal Show and, and a few of the sort of bigger shows as a in my boy rider and in the hut classes. So that's sort of where the position, I guess my position always came from, that sort of stuff. And then as far as the horsemanship and the horse training goes, I've got a father that's a real... A real thinker when it comes to training horses, and he's just just a student of it. Like he loves it, and he's a very good horseman himself. So the horsemanship side of things came where I was mentored by him, 
And then I guess the love for dressage came from his interest in dressage. Like he was always turning to dressage principles to find better ways to train his horses. So, you know, as long as I can remember, there's always been a dressage book sitting on the reading table and he's been reading it or flicking through it. And, um, yeah, he just loves to read and learn the theory and then go out and practice it on his horses. And, and I just grew up with that mentorship. So to come across the dressage, whilst I was coming out of rodeo, and it makes for a great story, you know, I, you know this guy was a rodeo guy and now he's a dressage guy. Well, it actually wasn't quite that big a jump. Like, I was pretty much as close as a cowboy could get to a dressage rider before I became a dressage rider. Even though, I guess, in my first year of dressage and my original dressage instructor, Vicky Bryden, she would tell you, like, I knew nothing about dressage, but I had feel and, and horsemanship and I had a position, which I still have now, that she said all I needed to learn really was the, the ins and outs of dressage to sort of pick it up. Mm-hmm. And that was about just nearly 20 years ago, it'd be 20 years ago next year, actually. I went into dressage, so, yeah. Okay, and when you say you went into dressage, you went from rodeo to dressage, how old were you at that stage? I was 26. Okay. Yeah. And within that first year, you know, just of you saying, right, I've gone from rodeo into dressage, what sort of level were you riding at? Well, I got the opportunity. This is where things fell into place really nicely for me. So I I started my dressage career at FEI level on a horse that was already made, you know, the horse was like a schoolmaster and a very good one. Like Vicky Bryden had done a great job training this mare called Liebling. And virtually I just spent the first year pushing buttons, you know, on the horse. And Vicky used to give me a lesson every afternoon after work. And I was working as a property valuer at the time. That's what, I, that's what my trade is. And Vicky would give me a lesson after work and virtually just told me how to push buttons on this horse that she created. And, um, you know, I got a really good introduction of how to ride FEI level, but, you know, then I had to learn. Then I went to Europe the year after, and I spent three years over there learning how to actually put the horses together from four years old up. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah, no, I had my – look, in my first year of dressage, I won a state municipal championship at Intermediate 1 and ended up third in Australia for the Prison George, and, which, you know, that was just pushing buttons on a very nice horse. That wasn't really riding dressage. It was a bit of a fairy tale, really, you know, something that people yeah, dream absolutely. of. I'd just start in dressage and start at FEI level. Yeah, something mm, people certainly aspire to. I'm very, very lucky. Mm, mm. Yeah. What do you think, you know, because you, it's not just the dressage, you'd already done a lot with horses. For people to start with horses, what do you think the core skills are that they need? Well, I always say you should be a horse person first and a dressage Ride a second, you know. Okay. So horsemanship itself is the, is the key. So whether it's riding, camp rafting, or cutting, you know, it's the horsemanship that should be considered first. Mm-hmm. And that's just a matter of how to read the animal, feel the animal, develop the timing, develop the balance to be able to deliver your aid to the horse. Whether it, you know, and that doesn't really even matter what sport you're doing. That's exactly that's what horsemanship is. You know, they'll read the horse have yourself in a position where you can feel the horse and have the timing to then apply your aids appropriately. And, yeah, and then as far as then dressage, I mean, you can Google things on dressage and learn the theory nowadays. 
Mm-hmm. So learning the theory is not the hard part. It's actually then putting into practice with what we just said before, you know, with timing, feeling, balance, and trying to make it. I mean, having an overall philosophy, I think, is an important part too. So, you know, because if you have a philosophy of what you want to be as a dressage rider or a cutting horse rider, well, then you'll always search for information that suits that philosophy. So, for example, my philosophy is, you know, I want to try to make it look like it's easy. You know, I'm doing nothing and that my horse is operating on small aids that people look at me riding and go, oh, wow, what's he doing? He looks like he's doing nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, I've tried to find the skills and try to find the information to develop the skills to be able to fit that philosophy. Yep, yep. I think developing a philosophy, it has to be appropriate to the sport. You know, if someone says, I want to learn to ride FEI dressage with no bridle, well, that's, you can do that at home, but you can't do it at a show. Mm. I mean, I've always been, I've always enjoyed competition too. So a lot of my things that I try to search for and do always fit around how can I compete to, uh, because I believe that the true test of your horse training is in competition. A lot of people will go, oh, we don't like competing, and that's fair enough for them, but you really never know how good your training is until you have to apply it on a certain day at a certain time in a certain part of the arena and see how good your training is. Yep, yep. Okay, so that horsemanship, you know, horsemanship first, the timing, feel, balance across all horse sports, what do you have then that's made you – Keep striving because, you know, it hasn't all just been a straight road. There's been lots of ups and downs and you've just kept bouncing back and bouncing back. What makes it that you keep bouncing back and keep striving for the top level that a lot of other people might get, you know, one or two hiccups or one or two bumps in the road and then they drop off and say, oh, that's not for me. What have you got that everyone else hasn't got? I suppose I don't want to have any regrets. You know, when I finish riding, one of the reasons I ride a lot of horses, I'm always at a show with, you know, minimum sort of five horses and I'm always flat out riding lots of horses and, you know, today I rode 10 and, you know, I've just arrived in Melbourne. I'm going to do 12 lessons tomorrow for the next three days. And I guess I just don't want to have any regrets. I don't want to have missed anything. And if I really want to sit back, you know, when I finish riding and say, yeah, look, I gave that a good shot. You know, I really, I did give that everything. Well, I don't really want to think, oh, maybe I should have done a bit more or maybe I should have not given up too early mm-hmm. and um, maybe I shouldn't have let that little trivial matter make me want to give up. And I think, you know, just being resilient through those times and just focusing on the long journey, it really is a journey. I mean, if people are going to be in this sport full-time like we are, you are going to have highs and lows. You just cannot sail through this thing unscathed and, and having a dream run. And, you, and you're also not going to have a bad run the whole time. You know, there are times when opportunities will come up and, you know, you're either going to have yourself in a position to take those opportunities or, or you're not going to be in a position to take them and you have to learn from that. So, yeah, I mean, it has been a tough road and I guess there's been times – I mean, it's human nature to think to yourself, well, maybe I should be doing something else or maybe I should just give us up. It'd be a lot easier if I did give it up. But, you know, I think that for me personally it would be very hollow and it'd be very hollow. Uh, it might feel good at the time, but it wouldn't feel good after that. Mm, so the um, the long term. So I think, yeah, I guess I just want no regrets. Like I want to get to the end of my career and go, well, you know, I just give it everything I had and – yeah, it worked out and sometimes it didn't, but, you know, I know now that I did everything I could in my power, given the situation I was in, to do as good as I could. Okay. And I think that's when you can actually deliver 
to the upcoming generation, you can deliver them through wisdom. If you've ridden many horses and tried to produce many different types and temperaments and all shapes and sizes to Grand Prix, and you've walked the road on a few horses and uh, or as many horses as you can, you can then really bring that back in wisdom to the kids. Because, I mean, we can all read the books and we can all sort of quote what someone else's experiences are from reading the books. But, you know, I want to have my own experiences. I want to learn from my experiences of training horses to Grand Prix. And I want to have my own words. You know, I don't want to have words I've written in a, read in a book or seen on a seen on a DVD or someone else's words. You know, I want these words to be mine and I want them to be things that I've learned from and, and experienced. Brett, you've talked about your father. You've talked about Vicky Bryden. Who else has influenced you that's really changed the way that you ride, that you train, that's made you make decisions that have changed your path? Look, I've been influenced by a lot of people. Like I think you know, my, my father's mentorship for the love for dressage and the horsemanship. But then I guess like a lot of local competitors, like I went to the Sydney CDI in 96 or something. I was rodeoing at the time, but I went and watched it. And I watched, you know, the likes of Judy Dirks and Rosie and Heath Ryan and Matthew Dowsley and Rachel Downs. They all inspired me and I kept watching those guys right through even when I was just coming into the sport. And Clement Sturks, you know, like those guys is not that I've done a lot with Clements, but he, he still today can say something to me very openly and I'll take it on board. You know, he's very helpful. But I guess internationally, you know, um, people that I've really been attracted to over the times and been lucky enough to train with them all was um, Huberta Schmidt, Ola Solzgeber and Edward Gall. All different styles, but very good riders in their own way. They've all got their own system and um, have all been very, very successful. Yeah, and then probably of late, I've been, you know, doing, you know, catching up with Carl a little bit and those guys that come out of Carl's system and just looking at that way. And Isabel Worth, I mean, she's a phenomenon. No one can really work out how Isabel's doing it, but, you know, that's the thing. She's just got such a feel and she's such a talent and such a horsewoman. Yeah, so there's been all, a lot of them, to be honest. You know, even Harry Bolt. I mean, Harry Bolt came through my place the other day and watched me ride for a couple of days. And, you know, he doesn't say much, but the little bits that he does say, you take it on board and um, listen to what he has to, like, he's a view on it because he's very, he's got a lot of wisdom there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've all had their little bit, I suppose, on, on me. And, yeah. yeah. I think they're all big names and uh, all, mm. all, got big reputations so yeah you're right if you can just take little bits from all of them I'm sure the little bits you can are are very big yeah 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 horses who've influenced you who have been the major influences there oh look Victor Salute would be the major one simply because he enabled me to have the success that I always dreamed about but Whisper he was the one that put me in my first like gave me my first opportunity to ride Grand Prix yep yeah, Whisper Vicky Salute, um, they've all contributed something. You know, I've learned something from all of them. You know, Weltmeyer has been a great teacher. Uh, Zeppelin, the one I have now, like Grand Prix with Zeppelin, I mean, he's still teaching me. And some of those lessons are not easy to learn with him because he's teaching me how to ride a horse that's, you know, his size, hot, quite an awkward shape. But yeah, him, Lord of Loxley in Europe, when I had him at Grand Prix in Europe, he taught me a lot. There's, yeah, they've all contributed to something. Mm-hmm. You know, and even the ones I've got now, like they're all so different. You know, Bahalo, Lorenzo, they're two other Grand Prix ones. 
even the young ones, there's one called Tea Time that arrives, a little total of smear, and she, if I get anything wrong on her, she lets me know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're all really good teachers, and I guess that's what us people, if we want to be horse men or women, we need to keep listening to the horse yep. and trying to work out better ways to unlock the talents of the horse. Mm-hmm. And that's our job, really. I mean, the brief that we take on as horse trainers is, you know, really if we're, we just have to keep searching for what's, you know, the best out, out of the horse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we can start talking about whether we should be on better horses or not and until we're really achieving getting the best out of every horse, we're not really deserving of better horses. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what do you think's your proudest moment? Oh, definitely my proudest moment's got to be Kentucky 2010 when mm-hmm. I was, you know, yep. finished in the top 10 in the world. And I guess the special, when I rode the special in Kentucky, I, I set that up basically for that. So, um, I mean, um, yeah, Arkin, like I was six in Arkin, and um, that was a proud moment because Arkin's just one of those real, it's like the mecca for dressage yes. riding. You know, there's sort of four shows you want to do in your life. One of them's Arkin. Another one's a World Cup final. Then there's the Olympic Games and the World Equestrian Games. So Arkin's high up there. And to ride out of the arena at Arkin, getting a you know a standing ovation after my freestyle was really nice because that, that crowd's pretty hard to please. Mm. But, yeah, that whole 2010 year was full of moments like that. And probably well, I went to Hickstead to compete and I went over with Hans-Peter Minderhood and, and he said to me, are you going to ride the special or the freestyle? And I said, I'm going to do the special. And he said, oh, there's way more prize money in the freestyle. And I said, oh, look, I don't really mind. I, I want to practice the special because I've got to do it. You know, that's the one I want to nail in Kentucky. Yep. I went and rode the special and won the special, and um, he won the freestyle. But then about six weeks later, we were in Kentucky, and I had a great special, and he bombed out in the special. And, mm-hmm. and it was that sort of bit of practice that I'd had the six weeks before that I think led to the success in Kentucky. Okay. Yeah, I guess my proudest moment was sort of being – ninth in the special and then coming through and being ninth in the freestyle you know, for an Australian to be in the top 10. Mm, mm. It was, yeah, very proud moment. I mean, there's a lot of Australians there too, actually, in Kentucky. The second biggest ticket sales were to Australia after America in Kentucky, Jim, so there Jim. were plenty of Australians there. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about, you know, the, the decision that you made at Hickstead that's going back to before where you said you were focusing on the long journey. You know, you weren't focusing on the – the bigger prize money at Hickstead, you were saying, no, I'm, I'm really focused on Kentucky. Yeah, exactly. And I had that plan. I thought, you know, I need to practice this special mm. one or two more times because mm. when you go to those big shows like the Olympics or the World Games, it's trying to make the cut. You know, you're just trying to be in the top 30 to make it back to the special and then you're trying to be in the top 15 to make it to the final. And you just got to keep making the cut. And I knew if I had any chance of making the cut, I had to ride that special again and run through the test and, and work out where I could make up more marks. Yes. And I'm glad I did because that really set me up for a good show in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Just going back to Zeppelin, Zeppelin's like 19 hands, isn't he? He's a pretty big horse. Yeah, he wouldn't be much under, like he'd be 18, 2 or 3. Yeah. How tall are you? I'm six two and a half, just to be under six three. Yeah, I'm just wondering because you'd really feel the difference, you know, you said about riding a big horse but also a hot horse between him and the others. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Wellmeyer's is not so big. Wellmeyer's is yeah. about sixteen two. Okay. And uh, with Zeppelin's probably the big challenge with Zeppelin is just his body shape is you know, okay. He's a long back. He's, sort of, he's big. He um he can be quite hot. Mm-hmm. I love him. He's a super horse to ride. It's a gold medal temperament mm-hmm. in the horse. It's just I wish we'd had 
some hind legs that were a bit more under me yep. and a back that was a bit stronger because, you know, fundamentally, um, he's all of my weaknesses in one horse, basically. You know, I ride horses that are strong in the back much better than the ones that are weaker in the back. Mm-hmm. And I ride the ones that are a bit low set in the neck better than the ones that are high set in the neck. So, yeah, he's basically all of my weaknesses in <laughs> all put into one. <laughs> Okay, okay. I want you to think about coaching and mm-hmm. a problem that you often see and how to fix it. Yeah. There's two things that I see a lot, and one of them is that the riders aren't really getting the horse in front of the legs, so they tend to just annoy the horses a bit with their legs, and the horses are sort of, you know, I always say that we see our thing as, yeah, I'm getting on my horse to train him today to do dressage and the horses see it as I'm going to be caught and someone's going to sit on me and ride me around for 40 minutes and sort of pull and push and I'm going to try and do the minimum and I'm going to make my own try and get through this as doing as least I can. So, you know, the only thing that really encourages that horse to do what we want them to do is aids and the use of aids. So, you know, what I see is a lot of very, I wouldn't say sloppy, it's probably a bit harsh, but just not effective aids where the horse is getting what they want, you know, they're getting to do the minimum and they're getting the the consequence for them doing the minimum might be just putting up with someone's leg bumping on their sides for 40 minutes. Mm. But they've got away with not doing the maximum and we're really, if the rider was more effective and just made the horse respond once or twice off their leg and then let their leg be quiet in between, then they'd then teach the horse to respond to their aids. And that I see that in everything, you know, you see that in... You know, the horse being in front of the leg or whether the horse is uh, hanging in the reins or not listening to the half hole or, you know, anything. It's just uh, getting more response from the aids that we have available to us. So the same aids that I use are the same aids that everyone uses. Like, there's no, we, we haven't got a magical set of aids that we use, like professional riders use. We don't have, we use the same aids as the amateur riders. It's all the same thing. It's just that we command a bit more response from them. Mm-hmm. and we have a better reward system. So it's really just drawing a bit more of a black and a white difference between what we're doing and what you know people of less experience are doing. Okay. Okay. That You said two? You said the riders in front of the leg? Yeah, I guess yeah, in front of the leg. And oftentimes people will – horses or most horses will naturally drift a bit to the right, mm-hmm. and what ends up happening is people start sort of – they feel that and then they – kind of pull a little bit to the left. So you'll see a lot of horses going around with the neck bent left, but then not enough flexion to the right. Yep. So, you know, they're often, you'll see a lot of horses that need to be straighter when they're Mm -hmm. going left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for horses that need to be straighter, Mm -hmm. what do you tell the riders? You know, what Um, about correction? Yeah. Yeah, well, straightness always comes from the shoulders, so uh-huh. putting the shoulders straight. So, okay. yeah, what I'll get them to do is straighten the neck up first just to, so they can at least get the feeling of the shoulders and then start to teach them how to ride the horse slightly in shoulder four or okay. um, be able to determine the difference between what is flexion and bend and what is turning. Uh-huh. So, you know, so turning, I mean, really getting shoulder control. Teaching yep. people that turning a horse is from the shoulders, not from the neck and not from their legs, you know. It's turning the shoulders, that the legs are just a secondary aid and, and flexion and bend is just a secondary thing. The actual functional turning of the horse comes from the front feet, from the shoulders. Okay, okay. And um, that's one of the least, probably the most least, one of, well, one of the least 
most discussed things in the whole sport, but it's one of the most important. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that's that's good. That's a good explanation, I think, to um for those horses, for the riders to understand how to correct it. Can you tell yeah. me and just explain a bit more about frame control, feet control, transition control? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, you've obviously got that from the DVD, did you? Or? Oh, I do a little Where'd bit of homework. A bit of homework. Yeah, you do, you have, yeah, because it's – Rosie Ryan said to me, you can't use the word control. And I said, why not? And she said, it's, I don't like the sound of the word control. And, I mean, I guess definitely don't want the word control to mean like we're control freaks, but mm-hmm. what it is is the same way you control your car. You, you've got control over the whatever it is, your bike, your car, shopping trolley, it doesn't really matter. But basically, where all that came from was I figured that after I'd trained with all of those good people that I mentioned before, I really felt that there was three main things that they all spoke about. They spoke about it in different ways and with different priorities, but there were three main things. And that was to control the frame of the horse, so to, you know, via the pressure of the bit in the horse's mouth, you know, you got to teach a horse to actually be round. Mm-hmm. And frame control is one of the most um, controversial things in the whole sport, and I don't know which sort of population you get listening to your podcast, but unless someone's really walking the shoes of a dressage rider and competitor, I don't believe they should be commenting on frame control because dressage is the only sport in equestrian or in in any uh, horse pursuit that has such a defined level of control of the outline of the horse and the neck and the head position. So, you know, show jumping, camp drafting, hacking, you name it. Dressage has the most defined amount of frame control. So unless someone's really tried to teach a horse the movements in dressage with frame control, I don't feel they should be commenting. But also, dressage does a very lousy job of explaining itself when it comes to this fact. So things like roll curve and neck, that's all frame control, right? So basically, neck up, neck down, nose forward, nose shorter, rounder, lower, higher, long and low, all these things are about frame control. And all of them have been used for good and all of them have been used for bad. Even nose in front of the vertical, if the horse is in a bad place in its neck, with its withered down and its neck sort of up, pulled up and backwards, even though its nose is in front of the vertical, it's still not good for the horse. So all of the things are good and bad that we've seen over the years. But dressage does a very lousy job of explaining itself. And the reason people use these neck positions is to try to get better frame control. That's one thing. And the other thing is nose bend tightness, right? So nose bend tightness and the fact that people want to do the nose bend up, you know, for good or bad reasons, is because they're having trouble getting the control of the frame or having trouble getting the control of the... And when I talk about frame control, it's about flexion, bend, response of the horse to stay over the back in the rain. So again, nose bend tightness, that all stems and all comes out of people trying to get better frame control. Some people have loose nose bends, some people have tight nose bends. It's, and, and again, dressage doesn't explain itself very well. They just tend, they did, they tend to legislate rather than teach rather than educate, if you want to say that, like that. Okay. So, but frame control is virtually just being able to control the vertebra, all the vertebra within the horse's body, so from the look of its tail through to its ears, mm-hmm. and to be able to control. And, and frame control differs to each horse, right? So every horse is born slightly differently in its posture. And our job as trainers is to identify what horse we're dealing with, what posture this horse has by nature, what posture that horse 
gives us when we're teaching the horse to do special you know, movements or collection or whatever it might be. And we have to then try to correct that posture, just like someone corrects a school kid when they're sitting in class, you know, sit up straight. Our job is to correct that posture to so that the horse can then use its body better. Mm-hmm. And without the control over the frame and the actual whole horse's shape, we can't do that. So we have to have aids and they're virtually just pressures in the bit that show the horse where the most comfortable place is to be. Okay, yep. So it's a very long way of describing that, but <laughs> but it is important that riders really understand that the frame control for their horse, like everybody knows, everyone, Flying Freddy, my grandmother could tell you how you're meant to present a horse to a judge. You know, polarised point and nose on the vertical. That's easy. It's how do we train them to get the best out of them and then be able to have the skills to present that to the judges on the day. That's the hard part because just putting polarised point and nose at the vertical is not the way you get the best out of your horse okay. in daily training. All right. What If we can just go on then to foot control, we'll talk about just mm-hmm. an explanation of foot control, you know, foot control or feet control, I should say. Not, mm-hmm. Yeah, so the horse's yeah, feet, so- yeah. Yeah, so basically that's being able to control shoulders and, and hind feet. So mm-hmm. so with um So this is going back to the straightness. Yeah, straightness. So imbalance. So um so basically whether it's a camber after or a show jumper, most people know that if they put their leg behind the girth, like one leg behind the girth, that's how you control the hind legs left and right. Mm-hmm. But just coming back onto the shoulders we discussed before, the shoulder control is not discussed that much. And it's equally as important, if not more important in dressage than the control sideways of the hind legs. So teaching riders how to actually control a horse's shoulders and get the front feet, like when you ride shoulder in, you see all of your lateral exercises, every single one of them is an exercise in shoulder control and then placing the hindquarters appropriate to the movement. So even a half pass, for example, on the diagonal is, is, is a travere on the diagonal. And just like when you do Trevere up the long side, unless you can keep those shoulders on the straight line up the long side, you don't have Trevere anymore because if those shoulders wander off the track, suddenly you're not doing Trevere. And it's the same with the half pass. If you can't control the shoulders on the diagonal line and those shoulders come off that line, whichever you're riding, it might be KX, for example, you haven't got half pass anymore that's accurate. You might have a version of half pass, but you haven't got the half pass that's going to get you points. So being able to control shoulders you know, can of pirouettes is another one. Walk pirouettes. You know, they're exercises of turning shoulders around hind legs, not pushing the horse around with your leg. Like I said, even Trevere, where it's the most obvious exercise of putting the horse's hind quarters to the inside, unless you've got shoulder control, you haven't got Trevere. So whether it's shoulder in, rombeer, Trevere, leg yield, half pass, you've got to have short pirouettes, you've got to have shoulder control. And that's the control of feet, really, being able to build up and put your horse's feet wherever you want them to be, whether it's Shoulder four, shoulder in, four trap shoulder in, long there. You've got to be able to put them there. Okay. That's good. Transition control. Yep. So that's just pace. So really, you know, whether it's, you know, the passage, and I'll just use the example of trot, right? So the control of the trot pace, you know, we really have to start off with working trot. I always say there's seven trots, you know, you have to have for a Grand Prix horse. There's, there's pony trot, there's working trot, there's collected trot, medium trot, extended trot. There's Piaf and Passage. And um, I didn't count those, but I imagine there's seven now. <laughs> there's seven last time I looked. But 
yeah, pony trot, for example, is just a very small trot that's got no power in it, and it's more closely related to PR than collected trot. Okay. Um, I was going to say you, you, you lost me on has, yeah, you'd lost me on the pony trot, but I understand now. Yep. Yeah, every horse has to have a pony trot, even yep. the most spectacular three-year-old trotting horse that's got the white bandages on in Europe. If that horse can't learn pony trot, it won't be off. Mm-hmm. It might do passage on the spot, which a skillful trainer will identify that and then teach it how to do some form of what looks like PR, but it could actually be passage on the spot, but it won't be PR. Unless it can really do pony trot, which is little short quick steps, just like that Shetland pony, that would be more related to PR. And then passage is more related to like working and medium trot, us to weight. So they're all versions of trot because they all have two beats. Right? They all have a diagonal pair and two beats. So that's why pace control, for example, for someone who's at home training every day, they need to train the seven types of trot in their horse or you know, or the, the five and then try to train PR and Passage as they go. So just because they've got a big, spectacular moving horse, and I've had plenty of these, right, that come in, you know, like the riders will come into a lesson and they just want to show me how big horse can trot. Well, once I've seen that the horse has a spectacular big trot, I don't really need to see that again. Like I'd much prefer to see what it can't do and then work out how to make that better. So I've had a lot of frustrated riders who are a bit inexperienced and they've come in and they've just trotted around and you go, okay, well, now let's try to shorten that and make it, let's just come back to short little you know, pony steps and the horse can't do it and they get very frustrated and they wonder why the hell are we trying to teach their big, spectacular, moving, trotting horse to do this trot that means nothing? But inevitably, a couple of years later, when the horse has been sacked because it couldn't go to Grand Prix because it couldn't be off, that's when they come to you and go, oh, I know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. So that's where the pace control thing came from. So mm-hmm. canter's the same. You know, pirouette canter's the equivalent to canter as what PR is to trot. Mm-hmm. So and you teach the horse to be able to, collect the canter. The canter pace itself is a, is an easier pace to work with in a lot of horses. So you tend to sort of advance the, the collection of the canter before you'll get the horse to be off. So a horse, for example, at elementary should be able to canter the collection, you know, for a couple of strides that would, you know, the same muscles would require be required for PRF, but then it's not PRF until later on. Okay. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory with practical components that can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Thanks. All right. Just moving on now from riding to non-riding. You've mm-hmm. got you've got some non-riding retreats now. That sort of seems a bit, I don't know, a bit funny for a, a someone who's a rider, professional rider, coach, trainer, to have non-riding retreats. What's the idea of the non-riding retreat? Well, I believe that the forty or forty-five minute riding lesson that mm-hmm. we all go around delivering. Yep, I believe that that's one of the most archaic types of coaching. You know, in in an era where Australia, as a sporting nation, mm-hmm. has come up with some of the most innovative ways of coaching around the world. That's why you see a lot of Australian coaches getting pinched by other countries at Olympic Games to go and coach the other countries. 
because Australia has been very innovative in their coaching styles. Mm -hmm. And I believe that an old 45-minute riding lesson, you'd be lucky if the rider gets half of what you say. And, yeah, it's good because they get to ride their horse and, yeah, they save them going to the gym. But do they really understand your training system? So, for example, someone turns up to you tomorrow to have a lesson. And unless you've had a chance to really explain your training system to them, they are just picking up snippets of info that you're barking out at the moment of the problem, you know. Yep, he's bent too much to the left, straightening from the outside, and then you go about explaining why you're straightening from the outside, but then really does the person really get it. And I found this out when we started running this thing called Super Clinics. What happened there was I tried to go down the road of offering to a, to a group of people, say five, three days training at home, and they came in and I gave them a little taste of what a high-performance clinic would be like, you know. So we did some video reviewing, we did some uh, discussions on the training system. We videoed and reviewed whilst they were on the horse. So we had a TV set up inside the arena. And what I noticed was people that I'd been working with for three years improved more in that three days than they had in the three years prior. And I thought, man, I'm missing a lot here. This, there's got to be better ways to deliver this stuff. So... What happened then was well, you, it's impossible to run that style of clinic for a big number of people. So we also identified that there's a lot of people out there that have challenges in their riding. Now, it might be they suffer from competition, nerves and stress. They suffer from the fact that they think everyone thinks they're hopeless. They might have a husband that's complaining because they're spending too much money on their horse. You name it, I've heard it. And that distracts them from being better riders. So with the non-riding retreats, we cover a lot of topics and one of them is the training system. So I explain exactly what we talked about before. Control over frame, control over feet, control over pace. And then I you know, get up there on the whiteboard and we draw it out and we just completely run through that. And then I jump on a couple of horses and I, I'm wired up so I can talk and the people can listen. And I just talk honestly to myself as I'm riding around and I, I make a lot of mistakes, you know, we all do and um, show the ladies that, or, you know, yeah, it's probably ladies, that how, you know, yeah, I make mistakes, but if I let myself dwell on them, then I won't do the job properly. But if I make a correction, it might be ugly for a moment, but then it's sorted out. So we go through the writing system quite in depth, and then we go through some ways for them to handle training for competitions, getting themselves mentally ready for competitions, competing with a purpose, you know, rather than competing with the, goal of, well, I'm just going to go out and wing it and see what happens and then get disappointed and drive home in tears when they didn't get a good score. Actually train with a purpose in mind, set yourself up to go there and, and do the job. And if you don't do the job on a day, we'll work out what happened and then change it for next time. So actually get a much better idea and much better structure around their, their competing, how to focus on the right things, you know, rather than think about you know, there's that lady on the other side of the ground and I don't want her watching me warm up. You know, she intimidates me. You know, get all that out of their mind and start thinking about staying square on the horse, getting the horse round over the back, getting the horse, you know, in front of their leg, you know, and starting to ride the process, the processes of doing things rather than thinking about the outcome. So my view is that people who think more clearly and 
are better structured, make better riders, and they don't need a horse to come to me to learn that. Okay. And how many days are these non-riding clinics or non-riding uh, retreats? Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Now, you've got boot yep. camps as well. Can you tell me a bit about the structure of the boot camp? Yeah, that's a, that's the newest thing we've come up with. That, that'll hopefully be out next year. That's going to be a six-week, six-module thing. So I've virtually broken the sport into six areas, and we haven't quite finalised the wording on all this, but I've virtually broken the sport into six areas, and it covers topics such as horsemanship, training system, and then um, preparing for competition, competing, intelligent competing, you know, actually riding well. Like mm-hmm. Because doing well at shows can be a learned behaviour. You know, you don't have to have the best horse to go win a class. You've just got to ride the best test. And that comes down to a lot of arena arena smarts and arena um, savvy riding. So that's the sort of stuff I want to put out there. And, and we're going to present that in a module. So it's going to be some written content, some Q&A, and some video footage each module. And people will, will work through the module and then be able to set themselves up with a bit of self-testing we can't really do things like, you know, send us your video because, you know, you might end up with a couple of hundred and you just don't have the time to do it. But, you know, some self-checks, you know, yep. self-checks. But what I've noticed is for a sport like dressage, which is highly structured, you know, every level has, you know, like I said, go on Google and you can look up the requirements of every single level. You can just see so much. But for a sport that is so structured, probably the most structured sport of them all, it is filled with people who are riding with no structure and we want to provide them with the structure from the modules step by step come back to it that's why we did the dvds originally because i thought to myself you know for 70 bucks people could buy a dvd and if i do the job properly i can explain virtually all the words and all the things i'm going to explain in a lesson but for 70 bucks they they can put it on whenever they want Mm. Mm. so but I'll go and spend 150 to have a 40-minute lesson with me and probably only get half out, probably only hear 30% of it. So um, that's what I thought with the DVDs. And it's the same with the boot camp, you know, that the people can, you know, for whatever, I don't even know what it's going to cost. I've got a person that handles all that stuff for me and just puts all that structure together. But for that money, they can just revisit this thing for the rest of their life. And I want to put as much as I can into that and give them as much structure so that no matter... When they look at it, whether it's now or 15 years' time or whatever instructor or less coach they're using, they can take information from that coach and whack it into this structure and and feel like they own a structure. Because really, whilst ever you're riding around with someone else's voice in your head, it might be your voice, might be mine, might be, you know, Anki Van Grinson's DVD, whatever it might be. Whilst ever you're riding your horse with someone else's voice in your head, you're never really riding off your own feeling. It's only when you start writing on your own system and your own voice in your head that your voice is telling you the shoulders need straightening or you need to get better frame control here, like the horse is hanging against you or the horse is not in front of your leg. And it's your voice saying that, then you'll write it way better. Mm-hmm. You'll make better decisions and you'll make better reactions. And that's what we want to do. We want to try and provide a structure so people can actually start making their own system of training. Okay. All right. Well, we'll have those. We'll have a link through to those on your page on Horse Chats. So it'll be horsechats.com slash Brett Parbury. Brett, um, 
have you got a book? You've you've talked about DVDs. Have you got a book that you'd recommend? One that you've used that's helped you to complement everything else that you do? Yeah, I um, Vicky Bryden gave me the principles of writing, which is that German handbook. In my first year of dressage, and I read that thing like every night and went over it and over it and over it. And I um, I think that was the one that really cemented to me the aids that had to be used. But Harry Bolt gave me a copy of his book, and that is a fantastic book, again, for delivering the aids, uh, like just telling people the, the clear way of using the aids. But I also love the book of, of Alaric with Rhino Kinka. Yep. Yep. That was a good read. Yeah, but for people wanting to learn, I think you can't really go past that Principles of Writing, which is the German handbook. I think there's Principles of Writing 1 and 2. Is it but advanced? That, is it? Like, there's been some... Like, There's been some great books too, recent ones like um, the um, Tinica Bartles. I mean, that's a great book, Tinica and Inca Bartles. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carl did a great book yep. as well, Carl Hester. Yep. But yeah, Principles of Writing, which is okay. the German handbook. I think that's got to be our most popular book. I think the Principles of Writing then is the advanced principles. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now, what are you looking forward to at the moment? I know you've got, got a, a you've got a clinic changes. coming up, but you know, just over the next twelve months, two years, yeah, what you're planning? Oh, look, we'll have a go. We'll have a go for week next year. Yep. Um, well, equestrian games. I've got you know, World Mines is probably my number one horse for that. Zeppelin, hopefully, if he's you know, if I can work him out, he's a bit like a Rubik's cube, so I'm <laughs> trying to work him out all the time. Okay. You know, hopefully, I'm in the mix for that. I mean, there is the opportunity to be selected from Australia. For, for the World Equestrian Games, so I'll definitely want to be in there. And if, if I'm not getting myself selected, well, I hope I'm pushing the person that does get selected to be at their best. You okay. know, that's my job as well. So, yep. yeah, there's that. I mean, we've got a couple of big things coming up fairly soon with regard to our training stable. That's all happening. And then um, um, and that'll take 12 months to get that worked out. And then, yeah, just try and get myself you know, getting the most out of these lovely horses that I get to ride all the time <laughs> and they're trying to work them out. Okay. All right. Now, you, you said your philosophy is to make it look like it's easy. Can you just sum that up into a, a lesson for everyone? Have you got anything else that you can say about making it look like it's easy just so people then have got something to take away and uh, think about when they think back to this interview? Probably two things. One, you try to have no tension in your body if you can. Like try to be quite not not floppy but relaxed and supple in your body. And if that takes a little bit of off the horse work, then you have to do that. Now I, I stretch quite a bit. You know, as I get older I get a bit more stiff, so I spend a lot of time on the floor of a night time when my son's going to bed, I usually jump down on the floor and stretch quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I feel that the more supple I can be, that the nicer I'll be to carry for the horses. So I think making sure you're supple and you're following the horse and you're letting the horse move naturally. And I think the next thing is to um, have a clear succession of aids. So, you know, to make it look easy, you've got to have a succession of aids. So you know, that, that really means that you ask with a soft aid, a light aid, and then you use a progressively firmer, more annoying aid quicker and annoying until you get the response you want and then you reward that horse with, you know, pressure off and some form of praise and then you ask again with the light aid. So if, if you're not riding with a nice, clear succession of aids, and that might not be the best word for it, but it definitely a, like a light aid, a 
slightly stronger aid and then a bit more of an annoying aid that makes the response, you'll never really achieve that feeling that you can have the horses going and doing the minimum. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, you're doing the minimum, they're doing the maximum. Mm-hmm. Because then it's the it's the cue of the lighter aid which hopefully makes them respond and and not the, the fact we have to use a strong aid all the time, which makes us then look a bit ugly on the horses. Yep. So that's the... That's it. That would yep. be the thing. I think people that, that get riders really thinking about the aids they're using, you know, mm-hmm. not be clumsy with the aids, not yep. be... Because the aids are the same way that you and I speak, right? So the aids are the words, and it's how we put the words in the sentence as to how, what it means to the horse and making sure that the sentence is clear yep. for the horse. All right, I think that's good. It's something to take away. Now, Brett, how can people contact you? They can contact me through the Facebook page, which will go through to I've got a PR girl that handles that, and then that'll come to me. And uh, then we have an email. There's an email address on our website, uh, which is bmcarbury at bigpond.com. Either of those would be the, probably the best way. And those details will also be on your page, which will be horsechats.com slash Brett Parbury. Brett, thank you very much for taking the time out today to speak to everyone or speak to me, speak to everyone. Uh, it's been great talking to you and um, hopefully people have learned a lot from you taking your time. It's certainly been engaging. It's been very good. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses, or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 